Welcome back. We are going to do something a little different today. We're going to speak about Jewish continuity. And before I go into uh, what we're talking about in this uh, episode, I want to just share some information that I received doing some research from the Pew Research Center. They did a large study on the state of the Jewish community in America, and this this is from 2021. And while many of Pew reports in the past have gotten a lot of attention about uh, the decline of the Jewish community here in America, I personally don't recall hearing much about this Pew report, but I did go into it, and there were some uh, very interesting um, uh, results that they found in the report. And I want to kind of bring this back to the idea of Jewish continuity. So when we talk about Jewish continuity, we're talking about the ability for us as a people to continue our faith and traditions and our identification on to future generations. Now, one thing that is promising when you look at the Pew Report is that the size of the adult Jewish population has been fairly stable in percentage terms, roughly in line with the growth of the U.S. population. It's estimated that 2.4% of U.S. adults are Jewish, and this compares the, the first major survey of U.S. Jews back in 2013. It was 2.2%. So in absolute terms, this is in approximately 7.5 million people identifying themselves as Jews versus a 2013 estimate of 6.7 million. So the top line is, is good that uh, the number of people that identify themselves as Jews is stable and growing at a relatively small rate. Um, other things that were interesting in the survey is that uh, Jews are becoming more racially and ethnically diverse. There also um, been a, a, a bit of a split um, in terms of um, Jewish Americans are staunchly liberal and favor the Democratic Party, but Orthodox Jews tend to be more conservative. That's probably not a surprise for anyone who's been paying attention to the news. Uh, another interesting finding is that Jews are less religious than American adults overall. About one in 10 Jewish Americans attend religious services at least weekly. That is uh, uh, compared to about a quarter, 27% of adult U.S. adults who normally attend religious services weekly. And Jews also are less likely to say that religion is very important to them, 21% versus 41% of other Americans. Going on, uh, and this counteracts what, what has been in the news a lot about a concern of Jews being less interested in Israel. A large majority, 82%, say caring about Israel is still essential or important to them being Jewish. Um, I, I think the concern in, in, is that whether that's continuing with the younger segments of our population. Um, but what I really wanted to focus on regarding uh, the episode, the, the idea of Jewish continuity, is how Jews self-identify and what does it mean to actually be Jewish, and can that can that be continued to their children and their children's children? So younger Jews are more likely than older Jews to identify as Orthodox and more likely to say they do not belong to any particular branch of Judaism. So uh, it's probably not a surprise that the, 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 the fastest growing branch of Judaism in America is Orthodox Judaism. Um, and it's also the youngest branch. So just to give an example, let's compare ages 18 to 29 versus those over 65. 
So 17% of young people below the age of 29, between 18 and 29, are considered orthodox. 8% conservative, 29% reform. 41% no particular branch. Compare that to those over 65, 3% are orthodox, 25% are conservative, 44% reform, and 22% are of no particular branch. So, and, and if you look at the breakdown between 30 to 50 and 50 to 64, it, it, the, that trend gradually continues that over time, the younger you are, the less you're more likely to be affiliated with uh, non-Orthodox streams of Judaism, uh, meaning primarily conservative reform. You're more likely to be either traditionally Orthodox or to be identified with no particular branch at all. So just one last bit of data I want to share. So 42% of married Jews have a non-Jewish spouse in America, according to the study. But intermarriage rates differ within subgroups. So not surprisingly, only 2% of Orthodox Jews are intermarried. So if you're not identified as Orthodox, everyone else, it ends up being 47% of self-identified Jews having a non-Jewish spouse. Now, while that the fact that half of Jews intermarry is concerning. It gets even more concerning because intermarriage is more common among those who have married in recent years. Among Jewish respondents who got married since 2010, 61% have a non-Jewish spouse. And this is among all comers. So if you exclude the Orthodox, it'd be even higher. And this is compared to only 18% of Jews who got married before 1980. So, okay, then you can make the argument, okay, well, so what? A lot of Jews, a lot of Jews are going to intermarry, but that doesn't stop their family members from maintaining Jewish identities. And we're not even talking about the issue of whether you're halakhically accepted as a Jew, which has traditionally been identified as whether your mother is Jewish. But let's just say you self-identify as a Jew no matter uh, what your parents are. Well, intermarriage makes it more common that Jews who are themselves the offspring of intermarried Jews are not going to marry a Jew. So if you're a self-identified Jew from an intermarried parental relationship, you're go the, the stats show that 82% of the time you're going to have a non-Jewish spouse, compared with 34% of those whose parents were Jewish. So now that we have all the relevant current information in hand, let's go back to why I'm bringing this, this episode up. So I recently read a book by Rabbi Sachs called Will We Have Jewish Grandchildren? And it was written roughly 30 years ago, and its topic was Jewish continuity. It was the first book he wrote as chief rabbi of the United Kingdom. And it was clear that one of his priorities as chief rabbi was to address this challenge, the challenge of Jewish continuity. And the book was a dissection of the problem, why, we, why, we, why, it's, a, why it's an issue, what are some of the fundamental causes behind it? What are the potential solutions? And it was really a call to arms to address the issue and to establish a dedicated organization to address it. He actually gave a whole action plan in the book about how an organization, what the founding principles would be. And this organization was established. It was called Jewish Continuity. And because I'm talking about something that happened 30 years ago, I was curious what happened to this organization. I had, couldn't find any information about it 
recently. So I wanted to know a little bit about the, the founding of the organization and where it went. So through a little bit of internet sleuthing, I was able to identify who the first chief executive was, and we'll be interviewing him today on the podcast. So again, this is a topic for me that is particularly sensitive considering I have uh, three teenage children and I live in a secularized uh, environment. And I think everyone wonders, are my kids going to be marry Jews? Are my grandkids going to be Jewish? Are they going to continue on the things that I find important? And I think there's anxiety among so many of us who identify as Jews, how we're going to keep that going. So there's no easy answer to, to this. Um, but I think our, the discussion was, was a, a fruitful one. And it brings me back to Rabbi Sachs' teachings in general, which is a book 30 years ago could have been written yesterday and would be just as relevant. The arguments have stood the test of time. The issue he addresses is an issue that more than a, a passing moment, it's a relevant issue. And it's an issue that's persisting. And based on the data that we shared in the Pew Report, I think it's getting worse. And as we see, while uh, Israel is certainly a... A partial answer to the question of Jewish continuity, it's not an exclusive fix. So I hope you enjoyed the interview and looking, hopefully if people like it, we'll, we'll be doing more of these going forward. Before we begin, I have one disclosure, which is I had some technical difficulties during the interview and missed some parts of the interview, so I had to do a little bit of editing and splicing together. So I hope uh, the continuity of the argument is clear, but um, if it's not, the, the error is my own, um, and it was a great conversation, but unfortunately some technical difficulties prevented me from publishing the entire interview in full. All right, welcome back to The Growing Jew. We have a special guest today. We have Clive Lawton all the way from England, and I got interested in Clive because I recently read a book by Rabbi Sachs. It was actually the first book he wrote as chief rabbi of England. Um, and the entitlement of the book was, Will We Have Jewish Grandchildren? Jewish Continuity and How to Achieve It. And what I found fascinating about the book was its analysis about the deficiencies in the Jews in the diaspora and what could be done, what kind of proactive agenda could be addressed to, uh, to deal with this challenge. Uh, he actually took action by creating a blueprint of how an organization could respond to this, primarily focused by the, in the Anglo community. And the, the, the name of that organization was Jewish Continuity. And the reason we're speaking with Clive today is Clive was the uh, first CEO of that organization. So my focus of the interview will be to go through a little bit about that interaction, about developing that organization, uh, Clive's success and challenges, and where Clive sees uh, Jewish continuity over the more than 25 years since uh, Rabbi Sachs's book was uh, was published. So without further ado, uh, I'd like to welcome Clive Lawton to the Growing Jew podcast. Clive, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Hello, everybody. Um, 
Great to meet you. And, uh, well, uh, it's good that you're interested in this. It is a very interesting field. Um, I, I knew Jonathan before he became chief rabbi, and um, I, I think I was known as, certainly known as a Jewish educator. Um, uh, amongst other things, I've been uh, leader of a national Jewish youth movement uh, in my youth days, and I've been uh, very actively involved in the leadership of Jewish student activities um, when I was a university student. Um, I became a teacher in a Jewish school, not of Jewish studies, um, uh, of uh, English and drama. Uh, subsequently, I was the director of education for the Board of Deputies, which is our representative body of British Jews in the UK. Uh, then I became principal of a Jewish high school um, uh, up in, in Liverpool in the northwest of England, where the Beatles come from. <laughs> um, and uh, then I became director of education for the municipality in, in Liverpool. So I had something of a reputation as a, as a active Jewish educator, um, although not somebody with a formal Jewish education, I must say. I, I only went to part-time uh, after-school kind of Jewish education in um, a suburban, small suburban, um, uh, I was going to say modern Orthodox, but in the 1950s, nothing was modern, um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but an Orthodox mainstream, not Haredi uh, community. Um, and uh, after that, I was pretty well an autodidact. I, I, I learned everything uh, on my own along the way. Um, uh, but perhaps that equipped me to think of things in a tangential way. I never lived in the core of big Jewish communities. I always saw things slightly oddly. Uh, the university I went to had hardly any Jews in it. In fact, when I arrived, I pretty well immediately became chief rabbi of York. <laughs> Nobody else was there. You know, if I said Shabbat was on Tuesday, then it was. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I was known not only as an active and leading and involved Jewish educator, uh, I was also thought of as a, a slightly maverick character too, um, which I hope I've maintained ever since. Um, so anyway, um, uh, this uh, concept of Jewish continuity, I think it's important to remember the times. Uh, because, Craig, in your introduction, you said this was uh, a British thing. Of course it was. Uh, Jonathan Sachs was the chief rabbi of, uh, of in fact, the British Commonwealth uh, communities. Um, but he was um, also writing for a reality which was not only true in the diaspora as a whole, and certainly picking up lots of information uh, coming from the United States, um, but also, I think, wanted to say something about Israel and Israeli Jewry at the same time. Because two things had happened in the early 90s, almost simultaneously. Now, let's remember that we, the, the world Jewry consists of American Jewry, Israeli Jewry, and everybody else. Right, and American Jewry and Israeli Jewry have rejoiced in a dialogue of the death for decades. On the one hand, in Israel, um, the government uh, commissioned and produced a report called the Shenha Report. And the Shenha Report, I don't remember what its exact purpose was, but it's, what it did do was it produced a study of Jewish knowledge and attitudes of Israelis. 
And shockingly, it became clear, as if any diaspora Jew doesn't know this already, then your average Israeli wouldn't recognize Moshe Rabbeinu if it bit him on the nose, right? Not a clue what's going on Jewishly, right? And this suddenly shook Israel to the core about this rather um, self-satisfied view that so long as you're in Israel, of course Israel's got to be Jewish or what else do you have to worry about? They suddenly realized there's nothing underneath. There's no foundation to this any longer. Right? So what is Israel going to do about it? And in fact, Israel started to institute Yahadut, Judaism lessons in, in uh, regular non-religious schools, things like that, arising out of the Shenan report. But it was a big shock. And almost simultaneously, the, uh, again, I don't remember the body that it was, but it was some kind of umbrella body of American jury, um, uh, commissioned a report as well, a demographic report, which was actually led by a Brit, a guy called Barry Cosmin, a former colleague of mine from the Board of Deputies of British Jews, a great demographer who'd been living and working in the United States and was commissioned to do a study of American Jewish uh, attitudes and, and practices and so forth. And that report, amongst other things, um, made clear that American Jewry was, uh, was leaching at the seams very rapidly. Uh, levels of intermarriage were extremely high. I think the figure was one out of every two American Jews was marrying out and so on and so forth. Right, which suddenly also shook American Jewry. And we're not now talking only about uh, Oivanex from the right. We're talking about folk in the reform and conservative movements who are seeing that whatever strategies they thought they were engaging in to secure the future of the Jewish people wasn't doing it. Somebody had to think again. It was in this context that Jonathan Sachs started to think through. Okay, if we want Jewish continuity, the current stuff is not doing the job. What do we need to do? Mm -hmm. Now, that's where we started. Now, when I, I'm curious about, you mentioned your own upbringing, which wasn't necessarily a traditional uh, strong Jewish education, because uh, one of the premises of Rabbi Sachs's book is essentially the fact that we're not educating uh, Jews of all levels about the breadth and depth of the Jewish tradition, and that's impairing the ability to continue that on. Uh, they, you know, I think he mentioned at one point, uh, you know, the, the grandfather prays in, in, in Hebrew, the son prays in English, and, you know, the grandson doesn't pray at all. I mean, as, as, the, as that ability, that, that Jewish fluency deteriorates, so does the, the ability to uh, have continuity. Um, how much of of your, is, was that something that you said you were a bit of an autodidactic? In your own experience, not having as strong of a, of a um, let's say, formalized Jewish education, was that an impediment that you recognized that you had overcome in your own life, or you, 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 you always felt strongly Jewishly identified? Oh, let me be clear and pay credit to my parents. Um, they were committedly Jewish. I grew up in a Shomer Shabbat, Shomer Kashrut house. Um, I certainly did all of that. My family, however, both sides of my family, had little or no uh, access or, or relationship, should I say, to what is, I think, generally thought of as normative Jewish history, uh, certainly in the United States, uh, that whole Central Eastern European um, background, uh, the Yiddishness of it, uh, 
the good Shabbos, the, 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 the instant recognition and respect for a black hat and a beard, um, you know, pay us. Uh, my mother was Fardi from Gibraltar, a little tiny, remarkable Fardi community. My father was from an extremely English-assimilated Jewish background. Uh, it was only by chance that my grandfather married a Jew, hence my father, and so on and so forth. Uh, and dad was a senior officer in the British Army during the Second World War. I just wanted to add a little commentary here at this point in the interview. Clive goes in and discusses his involvement in the creation of an organization that was initially founded by Clive in Britain back in 1980 called Limud. And Limud was a, or is an um, educational organization which helps promote Jewish learning across denominations. And it became a source of tension uh, regarding whether Rabbi Sachs would be participating in this organization. So Clive goes on to share a little bit more about that. So Limud came into being, and in the early years, Jonathan Sachs came to present at Limud. He was, um, of course he would. He's a teacher, a great rabbi. It's wonderful stuff. Of course, when he became chief rabbi, it became highly controversial about whether or not he would go to Limud. Uh, and in many ways, the Haredi uh, rabbinate from the right uh, made it impossible for him to attend. And that's because be, be, because it was a because it was a pluralistic organization. That was the issue. Well, uh, it's interesting that you use the term pluralistic because Limud never uses the term pluralist. Mm. Pluralist is itself an ideological stance. Mm. Pluralismism implies an ideology, right? Mm -hmm. We always called ourselves inclusive or cross-communal mm -hmm. or something of that sort, mm -hmm. right? We would not, it was not for people in Limud, like me, to curate or determine what was correct Jewish and not correct Jewish. Mm -hmm. The result of that is that it quickly became the biggest thing on the British Jewish scene, mm -hmm. and then it spread all around the world. There are 90 Limuds around the world, um, with Limuds in China and India. Uh, the Limud in Turkey is the biggest thing on the Turkish Jewish calendar. Mm -hmm. There's a Limud in New York and Los Angeles and Colorado and, and Toronto and Mexico and uh, Peru and Argentina and so on, right? It's all over the place because it empowers the people. Now, empowering the people is not a rabbinical instinct. Um, that's, uh, that's, not, that's not the kind of default normative rabbinical stance. Uh, so to that extent, uh, I would like to believe there was a certain creative tension between uh, Jonathan Sachs's perspective on how things should progress and mine. Furthermore, having been a teacher and deeply committed to the doctrine of de-schooling society as a Paulo Freire uh, philosophy, um, uh, my instincts are to want to pass power over to ordinary folk. And schools, I think, are not necessarily the best places to conduct um, education which produces fruitful learning. We all know that. We all know that schools produce as many failures as they produce successes. That is a, that is a well-known fact about schools. And of course, because it's the successes that take the leadership, we repeatedly fail to respond to the fact of failures. Right? Now, that's true in Jewish education, Jewish formal education, as it is in, in general, general education too. And anybody who wants to be part of the leadership of the community and help 
people know and become responsible for themselves has to take that on board. Again, I think everybody knows that youth movements are infinitely more successful at motivating young people than schools are. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we know that youth movements are voluntary and therefore you can't get a hold of everybody. Uh, and therefore, perhaps they're a self-selecting group anyway. Uh, and therefore, you can't make a comparative judgment. But one way or the other, um, I didn't believe when I became chief executive of Jewish Continuity that we knew the answers as to what works. Um, the Jewish Continuity, the organization, uh, was uh, placed to be able to uh, research the Jewish world, not just the British Jewish world, the Jewish world, to find out interesting ideas, put them to work, and see what happened. And I was insistent that we do not know what works. And in the, uh, let's say, in the mainstream of the community, there were two solutions that the majority of leadership was convinced did work. Jewish day schools and trips to Israel. Mm -hmm. Now, these are, not, these are not the same people saying that, but there was a large body of opinion, particularly amongst philanthropists and, and wealthy folk, but also amongst leadership generally, who felt that if you increase the number of Jewish schools, you increase the opportunity to go to Israel, you will have made a big difference to solving the problem. Since then, of course, things like birthright have come into being and so on, which is exactly following through on that perception that was being asserted by those folk. So did you, are you, by saying that, were you suggesting otherwise, or are you just saying that hadn't been, that hadn't been demonstrated? Well, we have a situation in Britain where something like half of all probably more, half of all 15 and 16-year-olds go on an organized educational trip to Israel. It's, it's pretty well a rite of passage here. This mm. is not birthright. It's mm -hmm. people paying, right. right? It's pretty well a rite of passage. Uh, that's not stopping the leaching out of levels of commitment, mm -hmm. right? So the question is, and of course the people organizing Israel trips all had great surveys of kids getting off the plane and going, it's the best thing that ever happened to me and stuff like that. But the question is, if you take a bunch of kids, you allow them to remain half-dressed for most of the time because it's sunny mm. and there's you know, sleep deprivation of the opposite sex and it's gone. Right. You know, are they going to have an equally positive experience if you took them to Spain? I right. mean, was it Israel that did it right. or was it a trip? Right. Was it a summer camp or, or what, right? So the question really is, when you get to the 25-year-old who went 10 years ago to Israel, did that Israel trip make a difference to them? Mm -hmm. No, nobody was doing that research. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I guess, and I guess uh, it took, I guess he didn't know that at the time because at the time he was just starting to do that from a, or from a uh, formalized process. Um, I, I, I don't know about the birthright data. The birthright data would suggest that it has helped to a certain degree. But what, what um, in terms of, when did Jewish continuity uh, full, uh, close, close their, their doors? Right, so we didn't close. Uh -huh. um, we had from the earliest stages um, had a, what should we call it, a fraternal, no, let, let's go back to the politics for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, or, uh, perhaps not politics. Um, the British Jewish community, and I think this is true for the American Jewish community too, um, had two major focuses for its uh, fundraising, fund spending. Jewish welfare, 
old age provision, you know, that kind of thing, uh, unfortunate Jewish families, things of that sort, and um, Israel. Mm -hmm. Those were the two things that could raise money from the Jewish community. Israel's needs uh, and, and vulnerable folks' needs. Um, if you wanted to raise money for education, generally speaking, and this is evident, isn't it, in, in the private school system in the United States, people had to pay for it, right? It's a, that's, uh, you know, education is something you've got to pay for yourself. Right. Welfare, Israel, we philanthropists have to step in. Jonathan Sachs that uh, education, provision for education, should become the third leg of the Jewish community's philanthropic efforts. Right. We have to put more money into it, we've got to invest in it more intelligently, we've got to spend uh, Now, you and I, 30 years on, Michael, well, that's just obvious, isn't it? And that is one of the successes of Jewish continuity. Mm -hmm. right? It is now obvious. But back then, of course, what do the welfare people and the Israel people think about this new kid on the block? Right? Are we not going to break into their funding programs and take some of their donors and uh, diminish their income and refocus the community's attention and all that stuff? Right. So there was always unease and distrust about this initiative. However, we did have a relationship with the primary Israel fundraising body in those days called the JIA, the Joint Israel Appeal, which has a close relationship with the Jewish agency, the Sochnut. Uh, I think it's similar to, but not exactly the same as the UIA mm -hmm. in, in the United States. Uh, they were a fundraising machine par excellence. They raised incredible amounts of money for various projects in Israel and so on. Um, they uh, wanted to um, manage the growth of Jewish continuity so it didn't damage them. Jewish continuity was young and, and, and sexy and couldn't care less, mm. and we didn't want to be managed, right? Mm. We wanted to get on with our own thing. However, over time, um, that process eventually stymied Jewish continuity as an independent organization. Um, and the decision was made after three years of very dynamic operation that Jewish continuity would merge with the JIA to become a new organization called the UJIA, the United Jewish Israel Appeal. Right? Um, now, uh, that organization, uh, I wasn't interested in leading. I left it at that point. So I was not only the first CEO, I was the only CEO. Mm -hmm. And Jewish Continuity as an independent organization existed only for three years. What, 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 uh, the new, I'm sorry. What, the new CEO of the UJIA uh, was a Jewish Continuity man. So in many ways, there was something of a kind of reverse takeover. In many ways, the Jewish Continuity personnel entered this new organization with, I think, much more dynamism than the... Um, JIA previously. Did, did it have a separate? I did it have? Does it have? Or did it have for some period of time? Or, or does it have now a separate identity? Because Rabbi Sachs's argument was that you needed a specific focus on this issue, and this can't be subsumed in a greater cause because it will get ignored. And uh, was that was that protected? Um. Not hugely. Uh -huh. It was somewhat, but not least, of course, because the uh, new CEO of the new organization 
came from the Jewish right. continuity side of things. Right, so initially. Uh, so he was very attentive to the program of Jewish continuity mm. to try and ensure that it survived, mm. if not intact, at least uh, dynamically so. Uh, however, um, uh, fairly quickly, of course, not surprisingly, the JIA element of this, the Israel element of this, um, insisted more and more that the Jewish continuity side of things should be devoted to the funding and extending of Israel trips. Right. So That's kind of suited everybody. Right. However, having said that, um, Jewish continuity had laid down so many markers for activity. I, I don't think we could say at that stage we could define success necessarily, mm -hmm. but so many markers of activity that many of them continue to run on their own. Um, let, let, me, let me ask you... Um... Looking not least, I'm sorry, could I say, not least the creation of a new cadre of very much more confident and questing and creative educators. I think that how we count Jews is, is an important question for us all. Who we include, who we don't include, how we manage conversions, you know, those kinds of things. Um, with my current hat on, I'm chief executive of something called the Commonwealth Jewish Council. Uh, we have affiliates in Uganda and Nigeria um, who, are, who are African groups, tribes who have decided to be Jewish. Uh, who's going to accept them or not accept them, right? You know, um, so there's kind of there's much more diversity in the Jewish world than we give credit to. Mm -hmm. And manners in which people pass stuff on or keep stuff going is very much more diverse. Now, if you've got the vast majority of the Jewish world saying that's not proper Jewish, then you can well understand why somebody eventually go, all right, well, sorry, if it's not proper, then I'm not bothering. Mm -hmm. right? But if we were to say, well, that counts too, how many people might then feel affiliated and have something to pass on that they value and see pertinent? Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's difficult. Uh, having said that, then, I think that the Jewish world in Britain uh, is more much more diverse than it was. But, uh, but then Britain is much more diverse than it was. Um, it is slightly more respectful of diversity than it was. Mm -hmm. Not hugely so, but a bit more. Uh, I think levels of affiliation and association are still holding up quite richly, mm -hmm. but they may not be manifest in the ways that we used to expect. Now, is this a process of polarization that we all recognize in all kinds of aspects of, of life, you know, whether it's Republicans and Democrats, or whether it's, uh, you know, North and South, or whatever it is, you know, there are all kinds of divisions, aren't there, in society, which seem to become a more deeply... Uh, split, um, and that might be happening in the Jewish world. One of the big challenges in the Jewish world is how do we keep the Jewish people when there are so many pressures to create the Jewish sect? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, Haredi Judaism is a sect of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. It's not the definition or the truth or even the right way to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's only one stance on orthodoxy, let alone anything else, right. Right? which was only invented about 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. No such thing as Haredi Judaism for Rashi. Right. Maimonides wouldn't have known what it was about. Right. Right? Moshe Rabbeinu wouldn't have had a clue what any of us were talking about. Every single way of being Jewish today, secular, Zionist, reformed, you know, whatever, is all a modern product of responding to the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So... You know, we, we need to keep a grip 
on the sense of the Jewish people. What makes a Jew a Jew? You know this, Craig. You pop out of a Jewish womb. That's it. Right. Nobody has to even be circumcised to be a Jew. Right. Well, as... You know, how do you keep being a Jew? Well, you already were. You came out of a Jewish womb. Now, somebody needs to come and say to you, look, you are a Jew. What are you going to do about it? Not, mm. Ooh, you're not the right kind of Jew. We don't know. So there's a lot of counterproductive stuff going on. Now, let me... Let me um... If, as we find, come to the closing minutes here, let me ask a couple questions about um, Rabbi Saxon's transition out of the rabbinate. Uh, you mentioned before how uh, during his time in the rabbinate, it was a time of it was a time of challenge for him, uh, primarily because of uh, his inability to um, to to please both right wing and left wing aspects of of the community while he was representing all Jews, not just Orthodox Judaism. Jonathan certainly was liberated, I think, by not being in the chief rabbinate, which, let's remember, is a political role. Mm-hmm. All right? it's, not, it's not just a rabbinic role. Um, in fact, it has very little power. It's got a fair amount of authority, but very little power. And he was always in um, <laughs> a shutness harness. You know, we're told not to uh, yoke an ox and an ass together. But he was always in harness with the head of the Betin. Right? Well, this is an ox and an ass. So it's a really difficult right. thing. Neither of them knows quite which way to pull. Um, and he suffered from that. Once he was out of the chief rabbinate, he could indeed get on with it. But already, before he ceased to be chief rabbi, he was in Britain, without doubt, recognised as a major public intellectual. Uh, the then Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, said, you know, this is the leading religious thinker of our time. Remember, we've got the Archbishop of Canterbury here, mm-hmm. right, to have the leading thinker. He was made a knight. He subsequently became a lord. I mean, the country the country honoured him and recognised him. He had slots on t- national mm-hmm. BBC TV in ways in which the Archbishop of Canterbury can't get near, right? So he was very much appreciated. But this business of getting around the world and not least impacting on American jury, that's something he could do when he had fewer responsibilities here. One of the things he did in the last years of his chief rabbinate, which I think started to make a difference, was he paid much more attention to inspiring and connecting to the young upcoming rabbinate than he had done previously. Um, He took the view, and he often told me, that his writing will outlast the uh, small-mindedness of the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And therefore, I think he knew that investing in his writing was key. Uh, And I think that's been borne out. Well, I have to say that um, it's very interesting going through um, his writing. I will say the... um, I'm I'm not trying to compare his writing to the Torah, but I do want to say one thing about the Torah is it's timeless and timely. And I will say, reading his books, um, sometimes you feel he could have written this book yesterday. It, it has a timely, the ideas have a timeliness to them. I mean, obviously, if we're still talking about, I have, you know, the book, Will We Have Jewish Grandchildren Right Now? Obviously, we're dealing with the same questions now. So obviously, th- that's concerning that it wasn't necessarily solved. But the fact that the arguments and the logic could hold up today. In fact, I read uh, recently Future Tense. I don't know if you're familiar with his book there about Israel. And that could have been written a month ago. You know, I mean, and so so, so I, I am fascinated by his ability to to articulate ideas within his proper setting that, that, have, that are timeless regardless. So, um, well, I want to thank you. I think we're going up on, our to- on the time you committed. I want to thank you for sharing this. This is 
very um, your personal you know encounter with him um, and being able to share that was is very powerful for me. I've every I've never had a chance to meet him, um, and I I had reached out to him. Um, I have a I have a sister who actually lives in in Hendon, and I had tried. To, uh, she married a Brit, and uh, I tried to, to I I didn't. Uh, a bit naively, I tried to see if I could ever arrange an audience and it never happened. But um, I did have a chance to, well, I, w I was actually in England uh, a few weeks ago, actually. And I did have a chance to actually uh, visit his kever, actually, and, and pay my, my respects. But, but I want to thank you for you taking the time for all you've done for uh, Anglo Jewry and your continued efforts. And it's been very enlightening speaking with you. So thank you for taking the time. Greg, I wonder if I can just say in 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 finishing about uh, Jonathan Sachs yes. that not only was he a lovely man, um, he was resolutely positive. I, I don't think I ever heard him say anything negative about anybody. That is, his his position was always positive. This is always good. Gamzulatova. Uh, this is always going to help us. This is always a good way forward. And his capacity to reframe and look at things afresh with an optimistic perspective was tremendously empowering. Yeah. Well, that's a great uh, lesson for all of us. So uh, thank you again for your time, Clive, and uh, may you have much success in all your e efforts. And uh, it's, uh, it's nice to see uh, the breadth of experience you've had and the impact you're having on... Uh, on uh, the United Kingdom. I have to say, I greatly admire my time when I've been there in terms of, I really do feel there really is a kahila uh, across the scope of, of uh, uh, UK jury, which I think is enviable in America. We're a little bit more fragmented, so that you have much to be proud of there. And uh, it was a great chance to get to know you a little bit. So thank you again. Thanks, Craig. And I don't know when this goes out, but if it goes out around this time, happy Tugashvat to everybody of Not Shabbat Shalom. Thank you very much. Take care and be well.